Welcome to the Gaggle Podcast, where we bring you inside the newsroom to talk Arizona politics beyond what's in print. I'm Yvonne Winget Sanchez, a national political reporter at the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. Today, we bring you the results from Tuesday's midterm elections. I'm joined by... Ron Hansen, I cover the congressional delegation. And Maria Paletta, state politics reporter. Let's get started. It was a strange election day in Arizona. The nation's eyes were on the state after U.S. Senator John McCain's death on Saturday. Both of our Senate seats are open, and for the first time in a long time, it looks like Democrats actually stand a chance in the races for one of the Senate seats, and potentially for governor. And the day started out with voting problems. In Maricopa County, 62 polling places were not ready for the voters because the machines were not properly set up in advance. I ended up waking up pretty early because I started to hear from voters who were sending me direct messages and emails, and some of them were calling and texting, wanting to share issues that they'd had um, from the East Valley to the West Valley, North Phoenix. It seemed as though people were having problems all over the place. And at first, I think our team was really trying to suss through whether or not this was you know, exaggerated complaints, which, you know, we tend to get every cycle, or whether this was something entirely different, and it turned out this was legitimately a problem. But let's talk about the key takeaways and what you really need to know about the results from Arizona's primary election, which are still unofficial, but likely in some of these races with very wide margins, like the U.S. Senate race, they will stand. Number one, It was the night of the women. Ron, you got to track the women. What did you find out? Yeah, this is really, uh, looks like a a pretty good night for women, at least in the federal races. So as we record this, there are at least seven spots in the federal races that will be held by women nominees. Remember, we have uh, two people for each party uh, for nine House races and one Senate race. So that's doing the math. That's about 20 nominees that we have to juggle here. looks like at least seven of them will be women uh, this cycle. And as we record this, it's possible that there could be at least two more who join that list as well for maybe nine. Uh, By comparison, in 2016, there were five. In 2014, there were five. So this definitely uh, suggests some progress on that front. Um, Fitting with the national pattern, most of them were on the Democratic side. Five of the seven confirmed so far are Democrats. This includes Kirsten Sinema for the Democrats in the Senate race, but it also includes Ann Kirkpatrick, Joan Green. It will be either Heather Ross or Anita Malik, and uh, Harold Tipperneni as well. On the Republican side, we have Martha McSally in the Senate race and also Debbie Lesko uh, for a House uh, race. And there were at least two possibilities. Wendy Rogers and Leah Marquez-Peterson could also still end up joining on the Republican side there, too. It should be noted that at the state level, women didn't do quite as well in at least one important respect. Uh, Two incumbents, Michelle Reagan, the Secretary of State, lost her Republican primary and Diane Douglas, the superintendent of education, lost hers as well. So uh, there are limits, uh, I suppose, to uh, progress. But uh, all in all, this was a good night for women um, in Arizona. If those results hold, that means in November, Arizonans will elect their first woman senator ever. 
Yeah, I mean, it's a very big deal, and this is a theme that we're going to hear a lot about, I think, over the next several months. Um, now, remember, Governor Doug Ducey is going to be required under state law to appoint a senator to succeed uh, the late John McCain. Knowing him, I, I would expect him to make a bold move and potentially appoint a woman, so that person could theoretically, depending on when his announcement is, could become the state's first U.S. senator, but this would be the first, either way, this will be the first elected U.S. senator from the youngest state in the nation. Um, this is a very, very big deal, monumental deal uh, for a state that once, at one point, not too long ago, um, each of the five statewide offices were held by women. That's the fabulous five. And it was an era that a lot of people talk a lot about, but it's something we haven't seen um, for, for quite some time. So I would expect uh, to see both candidates in the U.S. Senate race, Martha McSally and Kirsten Sinema, play up the woman card, so to speak. And both of them will really be trying to message to women, suburban women who are maybe independent-minded, who may be disenchanted Republicans who are fed up with Trump, don't really feel like they belong to a, a party, might be voting more on issues over partisanship. And um, I think you will see both both candidates really try to make a grab for, for these two. More broadly, I think you'll see the governor uh, message to these soccer moms, suburban moms, um, people who do care just mostly about these kitchen table issues like health care and Medicare, and they don't want to see kids taken away from their families. Um, you know, do you have a sense of, based on these early results, Ron, the types of candidates that maybe these women leaned more towards based on issues? Do we have a sense of that yet? Um, you know, on the Democratic side, one of the major themes all over the country and, and here in Arizona as well has been health care. This is something that has often special resonance with women. Um, so I think that to that extent that they wanted to talk about health care first and foremost in some cases, um, I think that was one reflection of this sort of gender dynamic. But, um, you know, it, it's not clear, especially like in, in the down ticket races, how that might have manifested itself uh, as well. You know, and I'll say this, that in the near term, I think you're right that this means that in a lot of races, and especially in the Senate race, that you want to talk to the women voters who usually make up the majority of the electorate anyway. In the longer term, especially, again, as the Senate is concerned, you know, it's unclear what this means for policy, because you can see a lot of different um, policies that would normally be emphasized perhaps being turned uh, at least in slightly new directions. What this means uh, on that sort of longer term dynamic is it's we still don't know, but it would be surprising if it doesn't mean that some policies will be emphasized over others and um, that both parties will have to adjust to a new reality where um, we see women not just dominating the voting booth, but also holding uh, uh, important positions. Going back to the contenders for that Senate seat, Yvonne, I know you were at Martha McSally's victory party tonight. Can you take us behind the scenes there? What was that like? What did you hear from her? Sure. She came in shortly after it 
became really very clear that she had just run away with um, that race. She dominated Kelly Ward, former state senator from Lake Havasu City and former Sheriff Joe Arpaio. Um, she came in, she looked very emotional, she hugged supporters, she made her way to the stage after um, a, a, a woman shared a touching story about how um, she helped her family. And um, she took the stage and I felt like she, after paying tribute to McCain and telling um, personal stories about how uh, what their relationship looked like from their from her vantage point, she got real. So if you wonder where I get my grit, <laughs> to go to the Air Force Academy, to tell my fellow male cadets I'm going to be a fighter pilot, even when he was against the law. <laughs> well, I was just raised that way. And. For the first time, and I've only been following her for maybe like three or four months, but for the first time, she came across as someone that everyday Arizonans could connect to. She seemed very emotional when she was sharing her story of her childhood and, and her father passing away and watching her um, mom try to raise her and, and her siblings. And in 24 hours when I was 12 years old, everything changed. He went from a day of spending time with family, to him not feeling well, to going to the hospital. He'd had a heart attack, and he was stable, but in the middle of the night, he knew in his spirit he was going to go be with the Lord. And he asked for his kids to come see I was blessed to visit with him, not fully really understanding what was going on. But in that last conversation I had with my dad, he told me to make him proud. He suffered another heart attack the next morning. At the age of 49, he left us. And those words make me proud. They were written on the parchment of my heart. She got really emotional. And I think that, again, it goes back to trying to connect with real people and perhaps that, that female voting block. Um, she also shared a really um, personal story about what it was like to navigate the healthcare system for her neighbor who was like a second father to her and she was she just nearly moved to tears. She then my opponent pivoted. Is someone who is left of the Pelosi Democrats, who is a Green Party activist. She protested our troops in a pink tutu. She called to shut down Luke Air Force Base. She calls herself a proud Prada socialist. But now that she's running for the Senate, Hollywood cinema. And I like to say that. <laughs> she, she had a lot of one-liners in there and everyone was eating them up. So she's gonna, she's gonna prop up the pink tutu that cinema once wore while protesting war. And she's going to keep putting up those images of herself in the cockpit. And she is gonna hope that that carries her through November. So the second big takeaway, I think, from tonight, we all agree, voter turnout and that enthusiasm was super high. Were either of you surprised by the turnout? You know, I think we've been conditioned all year to hear about the blue wave and democratic enthusiasm and such. And Yvonne, you know, you and I just had a story examining that whole uh, that whole situation across the state. So. I'd be surprised if they didn't have high turnout, frankly. Um, I think this is, 
you know, one takeaway for the Democrats is that it really pays to get people on the ballot up and down, not just in one or two races, but to have a lot of people to pick from all at, at all spots on the ballot. So, um, you know, if you're a Democrat and you care about the Senate race, that's one thing. But you also had a choice in the governor's race. You had a, a woman in every single race uh, in the congressional races. It, it's just it's that kind of um, uh, volume of candidates and causes, perhaps, to pick from that suggests that Democrats might do well in the fall as well. Yeah, I mean, the primary really did see record turnout, and I think enthusiasm probably does favor Democrats. Um, we saw what that looked like on the ground. I mean, there's a lot of independents who are breaking for, for Democrats and even some Republicans in some of the races. Um, independents are also pulling those Democratic ballots at really high margins. So those swing people could could break for Garcia, for example, cinema, who might not otherwise if education was going well and they didn't maybe have concerns with um, the Trump effect in the in the Senate race. And I think all of this maybe tracks with what we saw in the special election in Congressional District 8 back in April. Yeah, it, it does. And, you know, one thing, though, that I, I want to point out is that the Republican ballot totals as they look, you know, late on Tuesday, uh, subject to, you know, final counting, you know, you're talking about 400,000 Republican ballots cast for the governor's race and for the Senate race. When you look at the Democratic totals, you're talking about 300,000, roughly. So this was good for Democratic's, you know, uh, past performances. This is not just absolutely uh, a, a number that means that they top the Republican Party. So they're still going to need independents to uh, get off the couch and show up and take an interest in their candidates in the fall that we still haven't seen. Again, this is good. This is a good performance for the Democrats by Democratic standards. The, but there's no, you know, consolation prizes in November. They have to absolutely beat them in November in a way that they really haven't shown much. And I think this is probably the result of not just, you know, spontaneous enthusiasm for these candidates. This is also what happens when you are a tier one target by the National Democratic Party and you have financiers heavily investing in infrastructure at the ground level, opening offices, you know, staffing offices, putting, you know, furnishing it with, like it sounds silly to us, but with furniture and buying high-speed internet for these people to access voter files and, uh, you know, cut, uh, you know, social media cards and do all sorts of things that they might not otherwise have had the resources to do. So I think this is also reflection, a reflection of the Democratic Party really capitalizing on that top tier status. Yeah, I mean, this is not an accident. Let's be clear. The cinema team has some very, very seasoned hands uh, in national Democratic circles. And, you know, the Garcia team is building uh, a network of voters and, and you know, putting together a ground game that they think they can lean on in November. So this was a good night for Democrats, but it, it's really kind of the test run for the real race. Maria, do you have a sense of how David Garcia is feeling? 
in terms of voter turnout. And this enthusiasm. Yes, I was just about to add, he did mention in his public remarks tonight at his results watch party, feeling like um, people of color, women, Latinos in particular, really came out for him. I, of course, don't necessarily have all those demographic figures in front of me right now. Um, if you looked at the crowd that was there to support him, it was certainly very diverse. So he, um, during the, you know, the months leading up to this primary campaign, repeatedly said that those were the people that he was focusing on, young voters, minority voters, first-time voters, and at least according to him, he felt like they came through for him tonight. We, this is a time for Arizonans to have their voice. I believe we're going to see record turnout. We're going to see record involvement. You know, folks are looking for a leader that is from Arizona in the sense that they're committed to the people of Arizona. And I think the people's voice is going to get, it's going to be heard tonight and in November as well. The third big takeaway I think is Ducey's performance. Again, these are unofficial numbers, but there are some, there's pretty high protest vote here, I think, against uh, Governor Ducey when you're matching him up against his Republican um, primary rival, former Secretary of State Ken Bennett, who totally, by the way, is not the same Ken Bennett that he was a couple of years ago. I mean, he went hard right. Right. I was just going to say, he took a hard right. Absolutely. And you're right. There was about 30%, um, at least according to, to initial results, that went for Ken Bennett. And he is someone who, you know, leading up to the primary election, really focused, or I guess I should say didn't focus on a broad slate of issues. Um, there were some sort of pivotal exchanges between him and Ducey. Um, interestingly, a lot of it revolved around the appointment for a replacement for Senator McCain. Uh, he just really criticized Ducey for his handling of Red for Ed in the spring, education funding. Um, he pushed back on what Ducey has shared as essentially, you know, fiscal successes. So he really came out just sort of as this anti-Ducey candidate. Um, and we saw that, you know, at least based on what we're seeing right now, 30% of Republican voters or voters in that primary haven't liked what they saw the last four years with Ducey. It was interesting at the McSally event, um, so she and Ducey, you know, share, as our listeners know, many of the same um, voters, and uh, these are the paradigm, some of, okay, so the people that I spent quite a bit of time talking to because I wanted to get in their heads was the Paradise Valley Scottsdale crew, right? Like, these are his people. These should be the people who get Doug Ducey, they want the low regulation, you know, great business climate, everything's great kind of governor, they were not impressed. And I don't know that they walk away from him in November, but they definitely are not fired up about him. And I feel like in some ways they have a bit of buyer's remorse. We'll see how that plays out. Did Ducey have a party? No, he did not have a party. He was never planning to have a party tonight, um, but after Senator McCain passed away, he halted campaign activities and canceled even his media availability for today, um, availability for interviews. He did issue a statement tonight. It was shortly after the first round of results came out, and in that he said he was, quote, grateful and humbled by the continued support we've received from Arizonans tonight. 
He also said, quote, we've delivered substantive reforms and made real progress these last three years in order to improve our state, end quote. And he was really already, you know, looking ahead to November, saying we have to come together again and build on these significant gains. So he is still really hammering that idea of I followed through on my promises and I need four more years to do more. So do see... Uh put out his um, statement, Garcia, meanwhile, um, had a victory party at Rollins. Take us inside the venue. Yes, so he was at Rollins, as you said, um, a restaurant in Phoenix, just right around the corner from our office here. We're here at Rollins in Phoenix at David Garcia, one of the gubernatorial um, candidates in the Democratic primary. was at 16th and Van Buren. It was packed. Uh, you couldn't find parking even, I don't know, 30, 40 minutes leading up to it. Um, cars were lining the streets, and then it was packed once you got inside. Um, as I mentioned before, a very diverse crowd, all ages. They were super enthusiastic all night after that first round of election results came in, which um, you know he continued obviously to hold on to that lead throughout the night. But even after that first round, they were going crazy, bombarding him with hugs and handshakes and asking for selfies with him. Um, and when he made his public remarks after the race was called for him, lots, I mean, just rocks applause and, you know, whoops and hollers and whistles and particularly, you know, he had this line where he said, you're looking at a working class kid from Mesa who's one step away from being governor of his home state. How cool is that? And everybody went nuts. Um, I do want to mention he also honored McCain early on in his remarks. He did have a, a subdued moment there after he, um, got back to his own speech again just very consistently enthusiastic there and a lot of support a lot of vocal support if david garcia wins the general election in november he'd be the first latino in the governor's office in decades and that's despite our huge latino population in the state of arizona he told us in past interviews that he feels that his family really represents these shifting demographics that we're seeing in the state he also feels like his election could help us sort of reverse as a state any lingering bad reputation we might have or anti-immigrant reputation related to Senate Bill 1070. We'd be remiss not to mention the impact that Senator John McCain's loss may have through November and beyond. As Dan Nowicki wrote in um, his obituary, McCain will probably be remembered as the most consequential figure from Arizona in the past 50 years. Um, and against kind of this backdrop of national mourning um, of him and, that, and, and his loss, the Senate candidates and other candidates may face more comparisons to McCain than the retiring U.S. Senator Jeff Flake, who, like McCain, was you know among the Senate's most vocal critics of President Trump and were lauded in some corners for standing up um, against policies and the politics that they thought were damaging to this country and to our relationships abroad. Um, you know, I, I think his his persona is really expected to loom over over us the, at least the next three months or so, taking us through November. I mean, whoever Ducey picks to replace um, McCain will be compared and contrasted against McCain. And whoever wins the November Senate seat that 
Flake now occupies will be compared to McCain. I mean, do you guys have a sense of how that could hurt or help any of these candidates? I know it's a hard act to follow in a lot of corners. You know, I, I'll be interested to see if Republicans even try to invoke John McCain, frankly. Um, number one, uh, to be very frank about it, John McCain wasn't always the most popular Republican with a lot of Arizona Republicans. They voted for him because they sure didn't want a Democrat instead. But um, we are in a different environment these days. As Jeff Flake put it Sunday, This is the Republican Party is now the party of Donald Trump, who really obviously has made clear his feelings about John McCain. And the folks who have made it to the November elections in many cases got there by being sort of, you know, loyal to Donald Trump and, and leaning into the policies that he has espoused. So um, now doing a, a pivot just at this moment of sentimental mourning uh, really seems like a tough tightrope to walk. And if you're a Republican candidate, do you even want to try to do that after spending most of the year basically not following in the footsteps of John McCain? And, I think what nobody wants is to have a devastating tweet from Donald Trump, but they, the second thing they really don't want is the devastating tweet from Cindy McCain. So this is something where I think he will be the, uh, the, the elephant in the room, but I think a lot of folks will just let the elephant stay in the room. There's, you know, just to talk about the hard, the cold politics of this, there are some who think that this ultimately could help uh, cinema in this race because it buys her another week of getting essentially what has been a free pass since she hasn't had a uh, you know well-funded formidable primary challenger so uh, because McSally paused her ads and stopped campaigning she can't come out swinging against cinema this week um, but then there's another school of thought that perhaps um, this could help McSally because her because of her military service and perhaps it is you know when put side to side against McCain's I don't know maybe you feel good about putting in uh, you know a candidate who shares maybe some strains of of his military career I mean her her resume is quite impressive as well so we'll have to wait and see what happens there Senator John McCain will lie in state at the state capitol on Wednesday which would have been his 82nd birthday on Thursday, there will be a memorial service for him at the North Phoenix Baptist Church. That's it for today. Thanks for listening to The Gaggle Podcast. You can find me on Twitter at Yvonne Winget. You can find me at M. Paletta. That's P-O-L-L-E-T-T-A. You can follow me at Ronald J. Hansen, and that's H-A-N-S-E-N. Be sure to start your week up to date on Arizona's top political news. You can tune in every Monday for new episodes and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Google Play. This episode was produced by Tia Price and Taylor Seeley and was edited by Kayla White. If you like the show, which I hope you do, please leave us a review and let us know what you think. If you don't like it, just direct message me. I'll see you next week. <laughs>